it's, it's really a pleasure to be here. The last time I was with uh, uh, Steve and Terry was too long ago, was in Stockholm. I'm reminded about that. My, my daughter, who today is 22, uh, she was actually with me in Stockholm. Uh, my daughter broke my heart by uh, not going to the University of North Carolina. Uh, she ended up going to Denver University on an on academic scholarship, uh, finished in three years there with a 3.8, and uh, uh, is now in the Daniel School of Business. And my aspiration in life is to work for her when she's the CEO of a company that uh, links uh, uh, the United States and, and my wife's uh, uh, home country, Italy. And uh, I'm, I'm uh, chiding Steve and Terry that the next time we meet, uh, it's wonderful to be in Waco. The next time we meet needs to be in Bellagio, uh, so over Lake Como. So I, I'm, I'm really looking forward to working with you on that. And I, I'm uh, sorry I wasn't able to hear uh, Jerry Anderson yesterday. Je I met Jerry in the late 80s uh, through the uh, what was then known as the Agency for uh, 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 health care, uh, HCPR, the Agency for Healthcare Research and Policy, and Jerry and I served on the healthcare technology study section at that time. Uh, I now chair the uh, healthcare quality and effectiveness study section for the Agency for Healthcare Research and Quality. And those of, of you who are uh, 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 graduate students and thinking of an academic career or those of you who are faculty who are pursuing federal funds, what I would say is uh, the only way to make sure you don't get funded is to not submit proposals uh, and uh, submit them as many times as you need to to get them funded. My colleague who's with me here from Dallas, Neil Fleming, Neil's an economist. Uh, we, we've been trying to fund our electronic health record evaluation work and he finally got a uh, uh, a, a second percentile score from ARC to fund uh, our work to look at the financial effects of our electronic health record deployment. Uh, as some of you may know, payers, uh, at least the literature looks like, they receive 91% of the financial benefit for electronic health record deployment. Uh, healthcare delivery organizations receive only about 9%, but that work's not very strong, and Neil's going to uh, update that work. So. Uh, I also just wanted to uh, uh, w extend my wishes of, of luck to Baylor University for success in basketball. Uh, I was uh, last night. I was watching the basketball games. Uh, one of my uh, t uh, classmates from Lawrenceville School was there. And uh, he was one of the 20 people from my class from Lawrenceville who went to Harvard. I turned down Harvard after watching UNC score eight points in 17 seconds in 1974 to tie Duke and then win in overtime. And uh, uh, those of you who follow basketball may appreciate that, that I, I, I actually may be connected to two winners. UNC might win the NIT this year, and my hometown team of the University of Kentucky, uh, they may win it all. My father took out her Herky Rupp's tonsils, and uh, I, I had discussions later in life with him about the Glover phenomena, uh, uh, the Glover phenomena related to referrals to ear, nose, and throat surgeons in the UK, where uh, regardless of how many times a cohort was referred, the probability of getting your tonsils out remained the same, about 70%. <laughs> So, uh, so let's kind of move on to what I'm going to try to cover. Uh, I, I'm, I'm, this is sort of an outline, and, and you can read it. Uh, what, what I'll say is I'll approach this with some trepidation. 
in, in talking about economics and Vilfredo Pareto. Now, I, I'm, I'm sort of thinking about the uh, Lloyd Benson, Dan Quayle debate, and what I hope is at the end of my comments, uh, uh, Terry doesn't say, uh, I knew Vilfredo Pareto. <clears throat> Vilfredo Pareto was a friend of mine, and you're not Vilfredo Pareto. Uh, but uh, uh, I, I think this, this will help us understand the connection between, between sort of the fundamental methods of perhaps this global forum, economics and, and healthcare delivery, connection between economics, transparency, and healthcare quality. So, so this is uh, Vilfredo Pareto. Uh, uh, Italian economist born in, uh, uh, born in Paris uh, to uh, uh, parents exiled uh, from Italy, later in life returned to Italy. His academic training was actually in math and in civil engineering. It wasn't until his late 40s that he made his contributions in economics. So, uh, you know, the faculty who are here are kind of, you know, wondering, are, are you, are you going to make your, your uh, seminal contributions in, in the field of economics if you're, you know, if, if you're even in your early 50s, I think you still have a chance. Uh, so most of you know about this, uh, this rule of thumb, uh, 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 Pareto rule of thumb, 80% of sales from 20% of clients, this kind of idea of the 80-20 rule. But that's, that's not what I'm going to talk about. And I, uh, I'm going to talk about efficient markets. Uh, you're, you're probably familiar with the concept of uh, the economist are, I'm sure, about Pareto uh, efficiency, where you can't, uh, it's, it's where you get to a point where no one can be made better off without making someone else worse off. And I, I think back to my experiences at UNC, I also had the chance to spend a week at the Center for Creative Leadership in Greensboro, and we had kind of the prover proverbial uh, red truck allocation. Uh, challenge of, you know, how do you allocate a new red truck and not make any, anyone else in the group uh, worse off? So uh, conditions for efficiency, and Pareto talked about this, certainly many others did, uh, and perfect information is, is one of the conditions for an efficient market. Now, you know, we, we could talk for hours about, about why, um, you know, why the healthcare market is not efficient, and certainly issues related to entry exit barriers uh, and insurance in this country are very challenging for us and uh, you know, we hope that we make progress on those. So, so how does this relate to health care quality? Well, uh, thinking about the uh, Institute of Medicine framing of you know, what does quality health care look like, there are these uh, six dimensions that are depicted here. And including one of those dimensions, for example, is efficiency or avoiding waste. And, and we may think that uh, maybe even up to 40 or 50 percent of health care constitutes waste. Um, and, and, and as a sort of as a, an aside, I had a recent experience. Uh, someone who used to work for me, her husband has a, a brainstem tumor, and there was a thought that this her husband might benefit from proton beam therapy. So she asked me, could I help her out? And one of my Lawrenceville classmates is at uh, MD Anderson, and so I contacted him, and one of my Mayo colleagues runs a proton beam therapy program at MDH. And just to be really brief about this, the MD Anderson answer, which is probably a great place to receive cancer care, was, 
Come here for a week, we'll redo all of your tests, and at the end of a week, we'll let you know whether or not you're a candidate for therapy. The MGH answer, and this is a guy who, PhD in physics, trained in, in radiology at Mallinckrodt, radiation oncology at Mayo, impeccable credentials, 25 years of experience with proton beam therapy, said, send me all your stuff, we'll look at it, we'll have a conference here, and then we'll call you and we'll let you know whether we think you'll benefit from care so that you don't have to come to Boston and, and waste your time and resources if you're not likely to benefit. And, and so that's what, and so I suggested, why don't you get to yes or no with MGH, and if, if it's no and you still want another pin, you go to MD Anderson. Turns out MGH looked at all this stuff remotely, and, and the uh, husband of someone who used to work for me is actually now getting proton beam therapy beginning uh, uh, actually on Monday at MGH. So uh, to, to move on then uh, from the, the sort of framing of those dimensions of quality, also in that cross inequality ch uh, chasm uh, publication in the Institute of Medicine from 2001, there are these 10 simple rules, and I don't want to go over all of them. You, 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 can, you can read these, but I do, what I'm going to focus on is rule number seven, which is uh, transparency is necessary, uh, moving from a current approach uh, where secrecy is necessary. So, you know, what's, you know, you know, what's an example of this? Well, I'll give you an example from my, from my own work. So about, and I've had a great 11-year journey with Joel Allison, our CEO, in terms of improving quality at Baylor, but I can remember a discussion that Joel and I had with our general counsel about nine years ago, and we had a discussion about should we show our data about uh, our care for AMI patients to our employees, and should we maybe even put it on our inter intranet? What I'm going to show you today is stuff that you can, you can see yourself today on a Medicare website. But go back nine years, we had this discussion, and our general counsel advised Joel, don't show this information to the employees because I'm concerned that they may go get a class action lawsuit attorney, like, like some of those in Dallas, and go sue on behalf of all the people who had a heart attack who didn't get a beta blocker. Uh, today, we, you know, we'd never think about that. But, but you know, this is, uh, th th that was around 2001 when many people thought that secrecy was necessary uh, as a, as a, certainly as a risk mitigation uh, technique. So uh, uh, another sort of thought about this, we're going to move on to talk about the Commonwealth Fund initiatives, and many of you are familiar with that. They do a lot of work in the international space. But these are just some thoughts from Lucian Leap at, at Harvard, who has a recent commentary that you can find on the Commonwealth website uh, related to transparency, public reporting, and quality. Uh, th there's a great deal of international comparative data that, that, that you'll find, and you know we, we could have a debate some other time about the relative performance of the U.S. healthcare system compared to other healthcare delivery s systems throughout the world. But what I'm going to focus on, just just to uh, try to uh, bring this to so, uh, sort of some very concrete information, why not the best.org? So next week. Uh, the Commonwealth Fund will post an analysis uh, conducted by the uh, American Hospital Association of the relative quality of multi-hospital health care systems in the United States. 
So that kind of discussion that the, our general counsel and Joel and I had nine years ago, we've blown right past that, and it's, it's out there for everyone to see. Uh, the, uh, and it's interesting, you know, we live in a small world. This analysis is actually done by someone who uh, went to, to the same high school I did, went to the Lawrenceville School about five years after me. So it's, it's, it's great to, to, to get Malik Joshi, is, uh, who's president of the, uh, the Healthcare Research and Education Trust of AHA, it's, it's his work. So what I'm going to do is talk about how his work is helping us to focus on improvement opportunities. Uh, by, by his uh, also uh, driving uh, transparency. So this is the Baylor healthcare system. We're a lot more than a, than a hospital. We actually have 24 hospitals that we manage. We have nearly 100 uh, ambulatory care centers. Uh, we, we have uh, 485 employed physicians, over uh, 18,000 employees. And one of the reasons I wasn't here uh, uh, last night uh, was I, I had a meeting at our Joint Venture Heart Hospital last night with the physician investor partners, but this morning we had a uh, uh, unannounced site visit from the Joint Commission, and so I had a meeting at 7 with the, 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 as a member of that board with, with the site visitor, and that site visitor was actually very impressed, had a lot of laudatory comments, so that, that was great. It, it wasn't that... Uh, there, there, there had been some concern as the reason for visiting. But to also say, you know, we have no health care insurance product. We're entirely on the delivery side. And so if you think about, for example, if 91% of the benefit from electronic health record deployment goes to payers, that's a real challenge for us if, if we receive such a small percent of that financial benefit. So one of the things we think about is how are we going to harvest the, the, the uh, savings from that waste reduction, where, where right now most of the waste reduction savings will be harvested directly by payers and certainly by the patients we serve, but it's, it's bad for our fina financial line, uh, bottom financial line. So I think uh, where we're trying to think through is, is, uh, is how can we position ourselves, uh, concepts of accountable care organizations, and we could talk about that in the question and answer period if, uh, if, if that's of interest. So uh, through Joel Allison's leadership, our, uh, our circle of care is depicted here. We have four pillars, quality, service, finance, and people. Uh, I was talking to Steve over lunch. When I came to Baylor in 1999, there had been a 20-year history of uh, compensation at risk related to performance that was entirely based on our fiscal operating margin. Today, that compensation related to performance also relates to, relates to people. So, so we, we get uh, uh, more of that compensation at risk with better retention of nurses. If we don't retain nurses, uh, that's extremely costly for us organizationally, and nurse turnover is bad for our, the care of our patients. Some of our compensation at risk is related to our patient experience, how satisfied our patients are, their willingness to recommend care. In the quality space, our compensation is related to our hospital mortality. The, the more we reduce our hospital mortality, the, the uh, more of that compensation at risk we receive, and we also have compensation at risk related to processes of care that I'll talk about. So uh, just, just kind of a brief uh, overview of some of that history. So in, in 2000, uh, 
Dale Jones was the chair of the board, and I understand the business school has, has some uh, uh, initiatives here in, in honor of uh, Dale. And Dale gave me a charter to lay out a health care improvement strategic plan for the organization. And out of that came a board resolution that said that quality and safety were the most important things for the Baylor health care system, and at budget time that, that they needed to be the highest priority. So now when we sit down and talk about budgets, it's not just a discussion about how will this initiative relate to our fiscal operating margin this year. It's how will this initiative influence our hospital mortality? Or how will this initiative influence our ability to deliver perfect care for surgical patients? So I, I talked about uh, changing our compensation program in 2000 uh, so that it's now a link to quality. If you're interested in more details, a couple of years ago I published a paper in the Joint Commission Journal about that experience. Uh, in terms of education, we have a rapid cycle process improvement curriculum, basically uh, uh, plan, do, study, act, cycle training. We've trained about uh, 400 physicians in 60-hour fa face-to-face training. We've trained about 1,000 employees uh, who aren't physicians. Uh, it's basically month one, three, five, seven of methods training. Uh, around month seven, you apply, after applying those methods to solving a problem in your clinical area, you present that, uh, everyone learns from that work, and, and you, you graduate from the curriculum. Uh, we, we've brought some management structure. I spent nine years at Mayo Rochester, and uh, a concept at Mayo, the Clinical Practice Committee, was something that, uh, that, that, that we've uh, emulated to some degree through our Best Care Committee. And then we have a business model for physician engagement. We, we tr we've trained physicians and we cover some of their opportunity costs to lead the quality improvement work. So in, in any business initiative, having the right people on board is important. Uh, we, we uh, you know, for example, hired our first chief medical officer in 2006, our first chief nursing officer in 2007, uh, as well as these other leaders. So we've received a number of national awards, and what I'm going to say is that the problem with many of these national awards in healthcare quality is they're very qualitative. They're, they're, they're not a, a, a quantifiable, they're not based on quantifiable objective criteria. And so the, the, the uh, great thing about this work of the American Hospital Association is there reporting data on the performance of healthcare delivery organizations? That the, these are these are data that that withstand the scrutiny of audit, uh, uh, and, and their their objective information about uh, the performance of these organizations. So, uh, th there were 248 healthcare systems with at least two hospitals that submitted data for process of care measures, for patient satisfaction, readmission, and mortality to, the, uh, to CMS. And essentially, the, the only ones who didn't were kind of asleep at the wheel, because if you didn't submit this data, you wouldn't actually receive your market basket inflation adjustment payment. So you're basically leaving money on the table if you don't submit these data. We're not yet into a payment for performance mode nationally with this. We're in a payment for reporting. And, and I'll go through some of the details of this, but uh, uh, we ended up ra ranking eight out of 248. Some of the systems that you've probably heard about, those of you in business are worth the Baldrige Award, 
Poudre Valley Health System won the Bulge Award this past year. They were number 12. Mayo was number 21. Intermountain Healthcare was number 11. The Harvard System was number uh, 12. Uh, I, I think Baylor Healthcare System's the only Texas system that's in the top 100. So, so this uh, uh, time trend chart here shows our performance with what's called the all or none perfect care bundle. Some processes of care for people with pneumonia, heart attacks, heart failure, uh, people undergoing surgery, things like did we get your artery open in 90 minutes if you presented with a heart attack, did we get antibiotics started within six hours if you showed up with our emergency room with pneumonia, uh, did we get uh, antibiotics started within one hour window prior to surgery, things that we know are associated with improved survival. And, and this here just, just shows our, our work over time improving, so we're now at about 95%. So, so we get this done for roughly 95% of patients. Now, you know, this is not Six Sigma. You know, we're, we're, we're eight out of 248 overall. Uh, we're uh, actually nationally for this particular area of performance, we're 15 out of 248, but we're way, way of projects under each of our four pillars, not just under, under the quality pillar. So this is patient satisfaction. Uh, what's, what's kind of interesting about this is how the environment of care is so important. So while we have improved over this time period, uh, this glitch here related uh, to, uh, so uh, we, we had a replacement of flooring, non-operative air conditioning in the summer at one hospital, major construction at a third hospital. Uh, we're, we're at, uh, I guess today it's uh, about 84% of our patients give us a score of four or five on a willingness to recommend a question, and we rank uh, 23 out of 248, uh, and I, I uh, realize that uh, that uh, this session is being taped as well, so I won't mention the system. But I'll say that one of the systems that uh, the American public would view to be the uh, certainly one of the top uh, couple systems in the country ranks 200 out of 248 uh, on patient satisfaction. And I'm part of a small group with people from the Mayo Clinic and a couple of other places, including that place. And when we sat down and asked the leader of quality there, he said, yeah, we have, we have no idea what we're doing in the patient satisfaction space. We, 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 we understand that we're struggling and we're really trying to learn from other organizations. And when, certainly that work, I think, will be accelerated on Monday when they show up on the Commonwealth website as being 200 out of 248. Uh, and again, that organization, if I mentioned it, you would, you would think would be probably number one or number two. It's not one of the, any of the ones I've mentioned so far. So these are some of the, uh, the, the other tactics, uh, you know, basically nuts and bolts of, of blocking and tackling for our uh, health care uh, providers, nurses, unit assistants. So we interact with patients. We acknowledge the patients. We introduce ourselves. We let them know about the duration of the communication. We explain what's, what's, what's going to happen, and then we thank them. Hourly rounding on patients. Bedside shift reports so that the patient is there hearing the communication between the nurse that's leaving and, and the nurse that's coming on and the family members. Uh, post-visit calls. At our heart hospital, Baylor Plano, 24-7 visitation. There's no time when you can't visit uh, a patient there. 
So uh, another area of, of work is uh, uh, readmissions. Uh, and uh, you know, those of you who, who are economists, I'm sure you're, you're quite familiar with statistical process control methods. But the, sort of the bottom line is for this time period here, uh, th this, this starts in 2005, goes to, goes to uh, 2009. Essentially, uh, no improvement in, uh, in performance over this time period. Uh, which, which is not good. We're trying to improve. But this, there was a paper in uh, the Journal of the American Medical Association about nine months ago showing this is the case nationally. Well, with a whole lot of work that I'll talk about in a minute, we finally have broken down below this lower limit of the, of the uh, uh, statistical process control uh, limits here. So we think that we're finally reducing the readmission percentage. This is down at 12.5%. And I'll say that this is in the context of a healthcare system that already has a very low readmission percentage. We rank, we rank 20 out of 248, but, but we, we want to be number one, and, and we, want, we want to drive our readmissions to zero. Our, our heart and vascular hospital downtown Dallas has the lowest readmission percentage by uh, two percentage points of any hospital. But so we've talked about a lot of this, but, but let me just give you an example of of how focused we are in this area. So this transitional care program, you come to our heart, you come to our hospital in Garland and you have heart failure. We have an advanced practice nurse who will see you on day one in the hospital. That nurse will do eight home visits over the first 90 days of follow-up. The nurse will visit with you and your physician in the physician's office. Uh, the, the nurse coordinates care. Uh, throughout the hospitalization. So this is totally new. Hospitals, for the most part, have thought their role is from admission to discharge. It's, it's, a, it's a totally new, new world uh, in healthcare, uh, and, and certainly CMS signals that by, by reporting, for example, uh, readmissions 30 days from discharge, mortality 30 days from admission. So one of the things that we've noticed through this is the length of stay for these heart failure patients has actually dropped by about a day and a half to two days, in part because these advanced practice nurses are getting things rolling right away and they're setting up the transition of care back in the community. Uh, we're also finding the readmission percentage has dropped from about 15% down to 5% with this intervention. Now the question is, so what's the business case? We're hoping through bundled care changes, uh, through, through federal uh, changes in the way we're paid to deliver care that, that we'll, we'll be rewarded for, uh, for these achievements and, and for the, uh, the, the, the use of, uh, of resources that uh, are patient-centered that reduce mortality, reduce readmissions. Mortality. So our mortality, uh, this is 30 days from hospital admission, is still pretty flat over this four-year time period. And uh, so, you know, this, is the, this theme is transparency. For three areas of care, AMI, heart failure, pneumonia, for Medicare patients, we rank 199 out of 248. That's not where we want to be. We, we rank eighth overall, in part because those other three areas, we're in the top fifth percentile. But we have important areas of, of care uh, for improvement. 
Uh, one of the things, for example, we're using is standardized order sets. So, uh, you know, we're, we're standardizing care where it makes sense. We, we've uh, reduced mortality through a, a hospital order set for pneumonia across our 15 hospitals, and we're beginning to do that for heart failure. And this uh, here depicts not mortality 30 days from admission, but shows our in-hospital mortality. And this is compared to all other healthcare systems that, are, that, that, that use a core measure vendor called uh, Midas, and over 500 hospitals use this, this uh, uh, organization to submit their data to CMS and the Joint Commission. We have moved from the fiscal year 2003 our observed mortality was higher than the expected mortality, so our ratio observed to expected was greater than one. We're now down at about 0.88, so our mortality is about, uh, in hospital is about 12% lower. This puts us uh, uh, in the 75th percentile. We want to move to the 99th percentile of performance. These are some of the things that we're doing, uh, in, including things like having employees stop the line. Uh, when, when they observe a safety concern, uh, deploying across our organization a, a, a safe surgery saves lives checklist, important importance of board members. So we had this discussion where you know some of our board members were saying, well, you know, when I get on a plane, you know, I don't want this to be maybe the one out of ten flights that pilot's going to fly this week where he or she decides that they're not going to do their checklist. Uh, and, you know, and, and basically we don't want surgeons who think that it's optional to do a checklist prior to surgery. So, uh, you know, we, we're essentially messaging to the surgical community, if you're going to be a Baylor surgeon, this is an expectation. And fortunately in the marketplace, this is an expectation at, at HCA hospitals, Tenet hospitals, uh, Texas Health Resources hospitals. So to uh, wrap up here, um, you know, I, what I've tried to make the case is that transparency is a key driver in healthcare. I've shared a little bit about our strategic planning work. You know, I, I haven't talked in detail about how we how we d uh, do performance reviews, but but I, I will say that I think if a healthcare organization is involved with performance-based compensation. That, that healthcare quality metrics, such as some of those I discussed, need to be part of that core strategy. Uh, we uh, we devote you know a, a lot of system level resources uh, to to this work, and one of my challenges is to make sure we create synergy across that work. For example, uh, we we did a lot of work trying to improve service excellence, patient centeredness. But, you know, the challenge is, well, if we're rounding for patient centeredness, what about safety? And so we've tried to bring together that work so that while we're asking questions about, you know, whether or not patients' expectations are being met, we're asking questions about, about uh, safety, whether there's concerns about safety, whether safe practices are being followed. Well, it's uh, been a pleasure to just share a little bit with you about our journey. Uh, I'll be talking in a little more detail about this on Monday when the AHA and Commonwealth have a, a webinar on this topic. Uh, uh, and uh, if any of you are interested in listening to that webinar, I, I can connect you to, to that as well. Thank you.
great. Yeah. Yeah, sure. I can hear you. Yeah. I think as an industry, healthcare is moving slowly towards reimbursement being more closely tied to quality. Although I think in the latest healthcare reform, I didn't see a, a huge step in that direction. Uh, I'd like you to kind of talk to us some if you see the dynamics of that changing as we kind of move forward. Yeah. The incentive so, systems, basically. Sure. Yeah. I mean, and I think uh, uh, many of us who are uh, you know, devoted to quality improvement uh, are, are concerned about that. I know the Mayo Clinic has done a, a lot of work over the last four or five years trying to educate folks nationally and folks involved in the federal government in the importance of, of uh, connecting uh, reimbursement and, and performance. Uh, I, uh, uh, and I guess I don't fully understand the, the dynamics there other than, you know, there's so many other controversial elements of, of, the, uh, of the Obama plan that, that, that uh, folks didn't want to introduce that. But uh, if, if you read uh, Ezekiel Emanuel's book on health care reform, and many of you may know uh, uh, Dr. Emanuel works in the Office of Budget Management. He's the older brother of Rahm Emanuel. Uh, his book talks about uh, the, the importance of uh, performance incentives related to quality, uh, and many people think it's his intellectual influence is probably the most important influence in health care reform right now behind the scenes. So I, uh, I'm hoping that through transparency and through seeing these very large gaps between current performance and ideal performance that uh, uh, it, it will become obvious that, that we, we do need to have incentives related to performance improvement, but I'm, I'm disappointed at this point that, that we don't have that. And, you know, it would be nice to be able to say that there's a business case and everything we do uh, in quality improves our financial performance. The reality is that's not true. We, we dramatically reduced our cost of care for pneumonia with a pneumonia order set, we also reduced our expected payment and our, and our net contribution by doing that. I'd like to sort of comment on that if I can and maybe turn that into a question. Um, the health policy world has been filled for the last 10 years at least with uh, commentary about paying for quality, paying for, for, for performance, and so on. And there's some severe problems with the idea, the major one being that the measurements are really pretty bad. And I'll give you just a simple example. Um, the uh, Cleveland Clinic in, in my town uh, is generally considered to be very high quality, but in fact, when there was a, a business coalition thing to measure quality, and it got a lot of national publicity in the 1990s, uh, the clinic ended up withdrawing from it because it didn't come out well enough on the quality measures. Uh, if you look at the Medicare data on the Cleveland Clinic, in a number of ways, the Cleveland Clinic does not come out looking very good. Their answer is... Well, we have sicker patients. But uh, the, the, pro the problem here is that may well be true, but that just says you can't measure the sickness of the patients very well to begin with because, of course, all of these measures try to adjust for the sickness of the patients. Mm -hmm. So um, <coughs> there is a tremendous amount of pilots, projects, and ideas, and experiments, and so on in, in the hundreds of pages of this bill. The reason that you, uh, of this legislation, the reason that you do not have 
uh, a move to payment by quality is that so far nobody seems to know how to do it. So I guess what I'd like to get is, is your perspective on how good the measurements are um, that could be used to, sure. that, that you'd feel safe about. Sure. So we could have a you know, long discussion about this. I actually worked with the Hartford Foundation in the mid-80s to do some benchmarking work with Michael Pine that ultimately led to the Cleveland Health Quality Choice Initiative and we wrung our hands in Rochester about, you know, did we want to alienate the Cleveland Clinic by taking the Olmsted County utilization performance and bringing it to Ohio and, 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 and let the uh, business group on health use that to drive improvement. The reality is that while the Cleveland Clinic uh, ultimately deep six that effort, they dramatically improve their care in the process of that. Uh, so you mentioned the Cleveland Clinic, and in this small quality group uh, where we, we meet in uh, Jackson Hole, Laguna Beach, we're going to be at my home in Keystone in September, my colleague from Mayo, someone from Kaiser, someone from Henry Ford, you know, we sat down with a guy from Cleveland, and he acknowledged, yeah, you know, uh, our satisfaction is terrible. Our, our, some of our, our evidence-based processes are not very good. In that setting, where you don't have a marketing director there, you end up having some candid discussions about, uh, you know, uh, uh, how, how good are you at driving organizational improvement across your, and I'm talking about the 23 hospitals of the Cleveland Health System. So how good are these measures? Um, you know, I mean, one can have a lot of debate about, about you know, some of these process of care measures. But you know, do do I think that uh, uh, a perfect care bundle performance of 97% is better for patients than one of 70% for these measures? Uh, absolutely, as a clinician, I do. And in very large data sets, there, there, there's there's certainly a relation uh, between. Uh, between better processes of care and better outcomes of care. We do have, a, I mean, we certainly have a lot of difficulty with risk adjustment, but for example, take cardiac surgery. There's now very detailed uh, data collected by the Society for Vascular Surgery to risk adjust cardiac surgery mortality and complications. Uh, and, and, you know, and I, I think we, we, we do a pretty good job of that. And, you know, and we, we could talk about, you know, the literature from New York State about how people have gained the, some of the comorbidity coding and whatnot. But, you know, it's sort of is the glass half full or is it half empty? Uh, I, I think we're in a lot better place, for example, the Baylor healthcare system today. Uh, Eleven years ago, all of our compensation related to our fiscal operating margin. I think we're in a lot better place today where we have people incented based on on patients' report of their experiences and on whether or not we're getting someone's artery open in 90 minutes than to have it be entirely based on, uh, on, on our financial results. Uh, yeah. yeah, I'd like for you to address uh, the issue of transparency and also address the issue of uh, the habits of the American society. In other words, if I get ready to buy a set of tires, I've got magazines I can go to and I know they're going to give me all the studies. If I get ready to buy a computer, I go to daily computing or whatever. What, what is being done and, you know, to make the tools that you're spending all this effort to sure. design and develop, if the public doesn't uh, see that there is a guide or a way to go to or where to deal mm -hmm. with, you know, for me, I see an entrepreneurial opportunity. Yeah, uh, sure. there, there's something for someone right. to develop. But I just, pick, I just like to have your thoughts because sure. we have to have it uh, usable. Yeah. 
Sure, that's a great question. So, and some of you may know this, uh, consumer reports will, will begin to report in the next few months hospital-level cardiac surgery mortality results, cardiac surgery process of care results. One-star uh, worst care, three-star best care, two-star no different than average. So, you know, I think at least I've found as a consumer, Consumer Reports has been helpful for me looking at, you know, buying a washing machine or a camera, and I'm hoping that Consumer Reports is going to be helpful for people who are thinking about an elective cardiac surgical procedure to look at some of their options in their community. Um, there was a, there's a commentary this week in the Journal of the American Medical Association to bring this down to, to the individual decision-making level. Where, where uh, the, the, the uh, commentary links concepts of patient-centeredness in healthcare with informed consent. And it uses, as an example, what would a consent form look like that's patient-centered for um, the uh, procedure of opening up your, your coronary arteries with what's called a, 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 a percutaneous transcoronary intervention, or basically a balloon uh, to open up a block or place a stent. And what this cardiologist proposes is that at the time of that informed consent, someone takes your risk factors and they say, okay, you have this percent chance of bleeding, uh, and they have language that, that, you know, that someone could understand at a fourth grade level. The, th this, is, this is the risk you have of a, of a stroke. This is a risk that you have of dying. And one element of that says, uh, the standard for the number of these procedures that physicians should do a year is 75. Your physician did blank last year. And, and that same consent form this person proposes would say, the hospital standard is 300 of these a year. Your hospital did blank last year. Well, if you took that form and applied it in Dallas-Fort Worth today, probably half of those hospitals in Dallas-Fort Worth wouldn't meet that standard of, of, in this case, 300 of those procedures a year. Now, you know, a, an informed patient might say, you know, I, I think my uh, interventional cardiologist is a good cardiologist, and even though he only did 40 last year and the, and the national standard is 75, I'll still go with him. Or even though the hospital only did 50 last year and the national standard is 300, I'll go with him. Uh, but but uh, you know, I think it's about uh, uh, helping patients to make more informed decisions and having effective communication devices. But you're you're absolutely right. There's a you know there's a tremendous business opportunity in in tools uh, for patients to be able to make more informed decisions. I don't know. We need to wrap up. But but one, I mean here's here's another example. There was some work done in uh, Michigan uh, that's, that now has, has, has been spread in uh, some other settings. So you have a heart attack, and, and you're trying to optimize the care you receive when you have a heart attack. So there's this form that patients and their families are asked to fill out before they leave the hospital. And the form says, uh, my doctor did or did not prescribe aspirin for me. And if, if not, why not? My doctor did or did not prescribe a cholesterol-lowering drug for me. If not, why not uh, an odd infinitum? Now, when we had those discussions five years ago, our cardiologists were offended by the notion that, that that might be necessary to use that kind of form. 
The reality is when that form has been applied in care settings, it dramatically improves the probability of patients receiving those processes of care. So, so you know, so I'm, I'm optimistic that there's, that there's, there's opportunities through transparency, through patient activation tools to, to improve care. And I agree with you that the, 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 the uh, activated patient aspect of this is, is extremely important, uh, in, uh, as it is important in, in, in other, other markets in the economy. Uh, we at Baylor University are very proud to, to share a history and a name uh, with Baylor Healthcare System. I think the, the, the work that Dr. Ballard and Neil and others are, are doing here just makes that ever more true all the time. So let's thank uh, Dr. Ballard for his comments. <laughs>